Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When a person's behavior improves, we naturally speak of how they have grown or changed when what has changed is not the person, but the instruction that controls their actions. Scripture bypasses human psychology to focus strictly on commandment and behavior. The Bible relieves the burden of sin by substituting one master for another. That's it. We don't change. We don't improve. We simply remember that we were slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord our God brought us out by his mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and that this same Lord has now commanded us to obey him. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 235 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we're going to wrap up chapter 2, and we will continue to see the Gospel of Matthew take us in a different direction in the undoing of the betrayal of God in the asking of Samuel for a king. People don't recognize how much the Bible undermines and critiques power, human power. They don't realize, they know that it happens, but they don't put the correct emphasis on it. This entire book so far has only been about kings and about power. We began chapter one with the line of David, which is rejected. Then we go to Herod, who is rejected. And we send Joseph into Egypt, the land of Pharaoh, so that God can bring him out again. Every movement so far has been against the king and against power and against human strength. I beg listeners, do not miss the central point that Matthew is critiquing human power. People don't understand this. They think that human power is somehow redeemable or somehow fixable, or if we just do a different way or we have a different ism and a different politics, everything will become good again. No. God realizes the only way for human power to work is not to fix the power, it's to remove the human. And let me emphasize that last point because I'm certain still that people misunderstand what you're saying, Richard. Power isn't anything. You can't say power is evil. You can't say power is good. Power in scripture is functional like everything else. So the necessary clarification of Richard's statement about power is that power, which is a tool, in the hands of men is wicked. But power in the right hand of God is beautiful. And that is why scripture keeps the infrastructure of power in the Roman household 
That is why scripture keeps the infrastructure of power in the Davidic dynasty, but eliminates David and eliminates Caesar. So instead of David and Caesar, you have scripture. But to actualize the power of scripture, the New Testament, the Pauline school, does not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And this, in the final analysis, is the very thing I love about Eastern Orthodox liturgy, and it's the very thing that many people struggle with, the Roman infrastructure of the liturgy. You have royal doors, you have a high place, you have a cathedra, you have strict protocol about who stands where and who goes first and who goes last. All of this kingly paraphernalia is reoriented towards the true king who comes to us in the content of the reading. And I think it's necessary. I don't think you can just say, oh yeah, we get it, so now can't we just... No, you don't understand, especially in the United States, because you think it's all a bunch of pomp and circumstance. It's not until you bow until you are forced to stand at the back of the line, until you reverence an empty chair, until you are told now is the time to bow your head, until you realize that someone else has a higher rank in that system than you do symbolically, until the priest tells you, no, you may not walk through this door. It's not permitted for you to walk in front of this table. Until you understand and experience that in a very practical and real way, it's impossible to understand what Paul is saying about the Roman household or what Matthew is saying about the Davidic line. People still in the United States want to determine their own fate. They think that if they just follow their own personal heart, everything is going to be fine. I just heard a podcast today, the origin of the phrase, be yourself. What that originally meant in English was quit thinking you're such a big shot. Be yourself. Calm down. That's what it originally meant. It didn't mean follow your heart. It meant settle down. It meant keep it real. Keep it real. Be yourself. Come on. Now, God, when he is himself, we see in Exodus, the first time that God decided to intervene in a human battle, he despoiled Pharaoh and the entire nation of the Egyptians simply by softening their hearts. And he defeated the entire military of the single superpower in the world, Egypt, through his natural power over the waters that he created. All that God needs to control the entire world is to be himself. Human beings, when they are themselves, only cause suffering and destruction, selfishness, and complete demeaning of the creation that God put forth. This is how we have to understand human striving to control, human striving to show their strength ultimately is going to be ugly and destructive, whereas God, when he shows his strength, simply manifests his power to create the world, which he did in the beginning of Genesis. Until you've been in the presence of a family from the third world, where life is difficult and people survive on relationships and community, they don't survive on wealth and comfort. Until you've been in the presence of a family like that, where the father has to do a job that is undignified, and his children, because they love him and because they care about each other, want to uphold their family and the dignity of their father. Until you've been in that situation, and you see a father surrounded by people who love him, and you see his young son, who is stronger and more impressive than his dad, making himself small in the presence of his dad, for the sake of the honor of his family, until you understand and identify with that, you can't understand what scripture is trying to produce in you. 
It's not trying to make you small just in the presence of your dad or your mom or your teacher or whatever. It's trying to teach you how to make yourself small at all times in the presence of the unseen God. You cannot do that philosophically. You cannot do that theoretically. You cannot do that formulaically. You can't profess that you are small in the presence of God. You have to act it out. And that is why I like being forced to bow in church. That is why it is beautiful when a Roman Catholic genuflects and crosses themselves when they enter the church. Because it's a kind of practice. You are practicing for the way you should behave all the time around other people. It's a kind of beauty and dignity that makes visible what is in fact beautiful about being a human being that we ourselves hide when we act out our power. So scripture is not removing power from the equation. That doesn't work either. It is putting power where it belongs, on the seat of Moses. I cannot stress this enough. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. This is the second time we've heard this commandment, get up. And the verb that's used is hero, which is a word that is used in conjunction with the resurrection of Christ. It's one of the words used to describe being raised, being made to stand up. So the commandment from the angel produces life in Joseph. It secures life. Again, it's securing life, but the angel emphasizes the child and his mother. So again, Joseph is undermined as the, quote, father, unquote, of Jesus. The language deliberately excludes Joseph. Joseph is just taking care of somebody else's kid. Because the life that is ultimately manifest in the raising of Christ does not come from the line of Joseph. I know we keep saying this over and over again, but the text keeps stressing this over and over again. The expression get up is a commandment. The reference to the child in a way that doesn't link it to Joseph is technical and repetitive. The mention of death, that those who were seeking the life of Jesus, they themselves are now dead. The seed can produce an action in Joseph And because the seed can always produce an action, the seed can lie dormant in Egypt until the king is dead and then get back to work. This is the power of the resurrection. Because no matter what, no matter what, God has all the time in the world. He raised the Lord Jesus Christ unto power for all time. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the permanent king who outlives all kings and has all the time in the world to establish his kingdom. In the Greek, there is a nuance here because it doesn't use the normal word for death here, but it used the end, at the end of Herod. For Matthew, kings come and go. Yes, Herod was seeking the life of these wise men, but you know, he ends. One king ends, another one starts. Matthew very much knows the score. Like I said last time, you know, this section of the wise men that came just before here was kind of an interlude up to Herod's death and after Herod's death. And Herod's death is kind of the marker. But Herod actually doesn't do anything. He pursues somebody. He doesn't catch them. He killed the kids but didn't get the guy he wanted. He didn't do anything to further his own ends. He just ended. And in the next verse, 
So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. We see Joseph doing exactly what he's instructed to do. And I want to take this opportunity to point something out that we were discussing earlier, Richard. People talk a lot about wanting to change and how we grow and how we become better people. And all of this language, and I've alluded to this in the past, all of this language is foreign to scripture. Joseph is what Joseph is. He's not a better person or a worse person. He's just correct here because he obeyed the commandment of the Lord through the angel. And that commandment made him act correctly. So the credit goes to the commandment. It doesn't make Joseph a good or a bad or a changed person. He's just in this example, obedient to the commandment and the commandment produces life and the commandment safeguards his family or the family in his care, so to speak. It's very difficult for us to hear this because we are so collectively sold on this idea that there is a progression in our life because we want to believe it. But we are like a plant. Whatever the plant is, is already in the seed. The seed goes in the ground and we grow up to be the tree or the flower that was already coated in the DNA of the seed. So the question is, do we bear fruit? the way we are. Because when you start saying, well, your nature is X and we need to make your nature Y, that becomes tyrannical because it becomes the judgment of the Pharisee, not the judgment of the law of Moses. Because then the Pharisee is saying, I think you're a good person. I think you're a bad person. You should be more like this person. Then you'd be a better person. This language is oppressive and judgmental. Everybody has a nature. People are what they are. It's not okay just to be what you are which is the misuse of that expression you used at the beginning of the podcast, be yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying whatever your nature is, it can be directed by the commandment. So your value isn't what your nature is. Your value is which master you pertain to. That's the point. And here, Joseph pertains to the correct master. It's impossible. I know it's impossible for people to hear what I'm saying because we imagine there's a progression Whatever you are today, it's just more of what you always were. Jacob's children went into Egypt, and Jacob's children came out of Egypt. And what was the root? The root was Jacob Israel. And what came out? The same corrupt, self-centered, short-sighted, rebellious nation now, rather than just a tribe. But nothing changed. And God had to deal with them the same way as he was always dealing with them. But here we have a new exodus and it is not a child of Israel, Jacob. It is the son of God. And so this is the only way to get the human part to change. God has to start out with an entirely new seed, his own seed. And this is the only way that anything good can happen is if it is God's seed that is planted. But God's seed is the word. God's seed is his Torah, and that is what has to be planted in order for fruit to come of it. And when you choose the Lord as your master and allow his Torah to control your actions, there's no progression from I was sick to now I'm healed. Not in the way people talk about it today. You were behaving incorrectly, and the Torah healed you by forcing you. You are forced. You are compelled like Simon of Cyrene in the Gospel of Mark. You are compelled now to act correctly, Joseph. And if you continue to submit to the correct master, you will continue to be forced to act correctly. You didn't change. You're still wicked. But your behavior has been corrected. 
Now, everybody knows that we are not shaped by our thoughts. We are shaped by our actions, by our habits. Everybody knows this, yet we persist in this subversive notion that somehow if we have the correct ideas in our head, we'll be transformed into something else. This is incorrect. The instruction is what establishes our value or lack thereof. Because we can philosophize for three hours about what's right and what's wrong. We all know that being cruel to your sister is wrong. So what are we talking about? We can philosophize about why you're cruel and about how other people are cruel to you. But that's useless. Because at the end of the day, there's a commandment. Love your neighbor. So stop talking and obey the commandment. But I, I, what do you mean? Ah, ah, ah. Just do what it says and it will be well with you. But when he heard that Archelaus, the head of the people, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, the hero, the Greek hero, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And here again, I just love the fact that the word of God is active. It's on the move. So we've gone from the Greek hero now to someone who fancies himself the head of the people and the word, which is the only true agent in scripture and the only true head is still working overtime to take care of Joseph, to take care of his family, because that's what the word does. It works overtime to take care of and provide for God's people. Before it was a move from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now it's a move from Judea to Galilee. So moving even farther away from the center of power. It's interesting because God is not bringing his king to defeat the reigning king as if replacing one king with another king is going to do something. He says, you know what? My guy is not even going to interact with these people. My king is not even going to deal with them. We're going to go as far away from them as possible and we don't care. God is not going to do things the human way. The only way to install your own king is to get rid of the old king. The way God does it is treats the kings how he should, which is as a breath. Herod comes, Herod goes, and then he has a son, the quote, head of the people, unquote, and he's going to go too. And God knows this. And God is starting with a new way of doing things with Jesus. Look, it's very simple. An American would say authoritarianism is bad. I disagree. It's neither bad nor good. It's a thing, and it can function either way. Scripture is saying, when your king is authoritarian, he uses it for his glory, and he destroys your society, he destroys life, and he makes people miserable, and he causes suffering. But when God's instruction is authoritarian, it makes you live correctly and improves life for everybody and reduces suffering. That is what's at stake in the battle with David and Caesar and Alexander the Great in the Gospel of Matthew. When a king says, oh, if I just make a decree, it's simple and it solves the problem, it could actually make life worse because the king is acting selfishly. But when scripture makes a decree about human behavior and it's absolute and authoritarian, it produces life. Verse 23, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This supposed quote is 
a bit of a puzzle for biblical scholars because you can't find a direct quote that talks about him being called a Nazarene. But if we turn to the Hebrew root, there are functional connections that illuminate this text. Right. So first of all, we have Nazarites and we have those in Numbers and in Judges where it's like Samson, the one who shaves their head and abstains from liquor and that sort of thing. But what's interesting is we don't have any evidence of a town called Nazareth before Matthew. But the word itself sounds like the root netzer, which means branch, which we do have in a very significant spot, and that's in Isaiah 11.1, 1, where it talks about a branch coming from the root, meaning Jesse. Now, if you understand this metaphor, David is a shoot or a branch that comes out of the root of his father, Jesse. So if you want a new David, what do you have? You have to have a new branch because David was that original branch and all the different branches that came from him. We saw all those in Matthew chapter one. So we have to have a new branch. So what I think is going on here is that Matthew is less interested in Jesus being in a town called Nazareth but being called a Nazarene, sorry, which literally means branch-y, like he comes as a branch. Because we have to have a new branch in order to produce new fruit. We have to have a new line instead of David. This is the only way it's going to work. This is how Jesus fulfills this prophecy in Isaiah 11.1, 1, by being a new branch. He has to be branchy this way, in the way that David was branchy. So by having a new branch coming out of Jesse, we have a new kind of fruit that's going to come. Now, it's not coming from Jesse. We can't push the metaphor that far because the root really is God and the seed is God's. But we have to have a new branch. And that's the point, is the new branch. God is intervening and producing life and going in a different direction at the point of Jesse in the genealogy, but that life doesn't come from Jesse. This is a pattern that's repeated over and over again in Genesis. If you're familiar with the story of the patriarchs and understand them, what you're saying, Richard, makes complete sense. And this is why, as the function Nazareth evolves, not just broadly in the New Testament, but in Matthew, it evolves as something despised and something that's from the outside, which is how the prophet functions, which is how Bethlehem functions against Jerusalem, which is how Egypt functions against Israel. I mean, we could go on and on with the ways in which God always plays opposites against each other. And the reason this happens is because life is a scenario, if you will, where opposites are always opposing each other. And scripture is saying, let's use this natural opposition in an unnatural way to make something meaningful and useful out of something that the king would manipulate to cause destruction. So one beautiful aspect of this too is that it's coming out of Galilee, which is of the nations. And so when God wants to create his own kingly line, it comes from among the nations, not from Judea. He explicitly sent Joseph out of Judea, which is where we get the root Jews, away from Judea, away from the Jews, into the land of the Gentiles, so that he would put down roots among the Gentiles in a Gentile city and become a new branch with new fruit and a new exodus from Egypt into Israel. Very soon in Matthew, we're going to hear that God can raise up children of Abraham from a stone. And that's what Matthew is saying already here in chapter 2, and he's regurgitating what Paul is teaching in Galatians, which brings together all of these themes. Because in Galatians, it's the Jewish leadership in the church that is manifesting the tyranny of Herod 
and Caesar and Alexander the Great against their opposite in the function of the Gentile convert. And so Paul is coming in and applying the prophets to that dynamic and saying, look, this Gentile convert or this Gentile outsider that you think is unclean and you won't sit at table with and you want to impose circumcision on, which, by the way, is a complete misreading of the Old Testament in the first place, but this one that you want to impose your tyranny on is actually the right hand of God acting against you. And guess what? By adoption into God's Roman household, they can be brought into the same covenant of which you are already a part. And you have to then share table fellowship with them in God's Roman household. And I said it twice so that no one misses the point that you cannot dismiss Roman culture from the New Testament because it is co-opting Roman culture and preaching Roman hierarchy with the scroll at the head in Ephesians 5, not the Father. Please hear correctly what we're saying. Here's the problem. You imagine this story of Matthew 1 and 2 as a Christmas pageant about how tiny and cuddly Jesus was and how humble he was. And isn't it so nice and cute that the Son of God was so cuddly and cute? This is not what Matthew 1 and 2 are trying to do. They are completely undermining what you think is powerful, what you think is kingship, what you think is ruling, what you think can be done in a society that can be good. It's completely undermining everything. It's not about Jesus being humble and tiny. It's about human power being undermined by the power of someone who is humble when that humble person is rooted in God is rooted in the teaching. And it's not the humility of the person. Please, don't think it's about the humility of the person. It's about the teaching that takes over. But it's only the humble person who's willing to bow their head that's able to submit to the gospel. In order that the gospel might force you and compel you by dictate to embrace the outsider and not to judge the one whom you think is less than you, to force you and compel you by the writ of law that thou shalt not kill. Thou shall honor the Lord your God and your parents, which is functionally linked in scripture because there's a command chain. The next time you go to a Christmas pageant and the central theme of the Christmas pageant is not about the power and authority of God tearing down the edifice of human power and strength, it's not Christmas, it's not scripture, it's not Matthew. The main point along the lines of what you're saying, Richard, is not that the child was weak. The main point is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that this weak child, this Messiah, has all power and all dominion so as to cause Herod to shake in his boots. And that his birth is the heralding of the power that you are explaining and that we are preaching. It is a power. It is the power of the kingdom. It's not a hoax. It's not a joke. It's a real power. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.